Tonight, if you'll take your Bibles again, we're walking through the book of John, John chapter 1, and uh, we're going to pick up in verse 19 as we see the celebration at the creek bank. Now, I understand uh, that if you know anything about this particular passage, you know, well, that's at the Jordan River. That's not a creek bank. That's a riverside. Well, you know, sometimes we kind of overstretch our terminology. And the reality is that even today, especially if you go to the Holy Land and because of the increase in population, because of the use of the water resources, fresh water especially in that part of the land, a part of the world, uh, it really is hard uh, to see many times, except in a, a very rainy season uh, occasionally, the river Jordan looking anything close to a river. Most of the time, it's a small waterway, a creek, really. Uh, it is fed by not just uh, the headwaters in the north, but uh, springs along the way. And that's what we're going to be looking at tonight. What happened that was so significant at this moment in biblical history? First of all, again, if you'll take your Bibles, John chapter 1 and verse 19, we pick up there. This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And, the, and he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. And they were probably getting frustrated at this point. Well, are you the prophet? And he answered, nope. Then they said to him, who are you so that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? He said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as, as Isaiah the prophet said. I'm going to stop there for just a moment. First thing we want to see tonight in this celebration of the creek bank is the fact that there has to be in our consideration as we begin this introduction. We've heard about John the Baptist, but now this is his first entry into the narrative of John's gospel. And what we find is John's bewildering identity. John's bewildering identity. When they looked at him, they, they kept asking, who are you? We can't figure you out. And there's good reason for that. Here was John. He was preaching really what we call Bethany, at Bethany beyond the Jordan. Uh, it is uh, a place pretty much due east of Jerusalem by about 20 miles, 20 and a half, 21 miles and, uh, and in that spot, there are, on the eastern side of the river, it runs north to south. And on the e eastern side, as you look in this direction, on the eastern side, there's this place called Bethany across or over the Jordan. And it's, a, it's an area that's, again, right near the river itself, the main thoroughfare, the main north-south direction. But it is a, a group of about five or six springs uh, still today. Uh, they are freshwater springs that feed what they can into the river. And it was probably there, not in the fast-flowing, especially in the days of Jesus and John, the fast-flowing waters of the Jordan itself, because let me tell you, uh, baptism in, in fast-flowing rivers, it's, it's a challenge to us preachers, okay? I just wanted to let you know. 
It's one of those times when you remember, keep the candidate's head upstream. Otherwise, the stream will run up their nose. You know, that's, that's the kind of thing that you have to be aware of. And here's the, here's the thing. In order to, again, crowds gathering, making sure that the context for a simple baptism would be possible, John was likely in one of these little inlets or little river uh, feeders uh, there at Bethany. As such, you say, why is this so important? Well, because it wasn't Jerusalem. You say, well, why, why is that important? Because this was the prophet of God for the first time in nearly 400 years. There had been practices at Jerusalem. The rites and rituals of sacrifice had continued. But the people had not heard a new word from the Lord for centuries. And now, this itinerant country preacher was out on the other side of the Jordan from Jerusalem preaching about the soon coming of the one that had been promised. Now, in that respect, this particular spot was a peculiar place. Peculiar in real terms because Unlike the political swamp of Jerusalem, the pristine springs at the Jordan were very different in the context of this preacher. The other thing is, not only was the location, but then look with me again in verse 20. It says there that, again, verse 19 and 20, this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And that he confessed and did not deny and confessed, I am not the Christ. There was expectation after all these hundreds of years that there, wouldn't, there was no word from the Lord, there was no further prophecy coming, that perhaps God had put a pause on his Annunciations, his proclamations to the people through prophets and, and priests and, and those that were supposed to be in his service, maybe that was part of his plan to, to then enter the last and great promise of Scripture, the coming of Messiah. And so these priests had sent their envoys from Jerusalem, traveled those 20 miles, and landed there at the baptismal site of John's ministry. And he begins to listen to them, and they ask these questions. And he had heard some of the rumblings, and, and maybe perhaps he had word, a heads up, before they even arrived that they were on their way. And John, being a man who was very little concerned about political uh, play and, and political intrigue, just prepared himself. And when they came up, he just wanted to tell them right off, I'm not the Christ. I'm not the one who God is going to send, so let's just settle that. Okay, you're not the Messiah. Now you have to understand that these priestly Sadducees, these people who were sent from Jerusalem, were people, the Sadducees were the ones who controlled the temple and the, the ritual practices of the day. And beyond that, their real concern was being the political representative of the Jewish people to the powerful Roman leaders that controlled the, the, the region at the time. They were, if anything, more than their priestly mediator responsibilities, 
they were men of political minds. They were men who were trying to make sure they were on the right side of the next thing. They wanted to make sure they knew what was going to go viral before it went viral. They were the guys that wanted to play both sides of the track so that they could be winning all the time and never lose their control, or at least their perceived control, over the people. So we see not only this peculiar sight for ministry, but these priestly Sadducees, again, feeding into our understanding of why is John... So different. Well, look with me again. It says here, not only did he say, I'm not the Christ, but he goes on. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he said, no. He answered, no. They were concerned. Not only was he not the Christ, but again, Rome's powerful. The most powerful empire to date. Most broadly, vast, controlling empire to date. And they said, this must be, they were thinking, again, this must be the time when, when Messiah comes. So if you're not the one, then, then there's a few other figures that we as Jews think might play into the end times. That is, again, look with me. Not only are you not the Christ, but then they ask, well, are you Elijah? Remember Elijah's story? It ended with a spectacular exit, didn't it? He was taken up in a fiery chariot. And Jews believe because of that, he, he never really died. Now take your Bibles, put your finger there in, second, in, excuse me, in, first, in the first chapter of John and go back to 2 Kings. 2 Kings, I, I know that's way back in the Bible. If you get to 1 Kings, it's the next one, okay? Second Kings chapter 1, I want you to read with me verse 8. They answered him, it was a hairy man with a leather girdle bound about his loins, and he said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. Does that sound like John? Yeah, what they thought was because they, the perception of the Jews at that time was that, that Elijah had never died. Well, one of the things that was going to be a part of the end time uh, scenario in their minds was that Elijah would return, that he would prepare the way, he would be a part of what Messiah would accomplish. He said, no, I'm not Elijah. Now, some people say, well, that's, that's, a, that's a really hard thing to say because Zacharias's statement about John was that he was going to be a forerunner in the spirit and power of Elijah. The other gospels tell us that. Now, again, people say, see, there's a contradiction in the Scriptures. No. He didn't say he was going to be Elijah, but he was going to have a similar spirit, a similar uh, ability, a similar anointing for the ministry. That's what Zechariah, John's earthly father, was saying. But here, they're like, okay, we're, we're going to check off our list because the guys that sent us, they're going to want to know that we did a thorough investigation of this. So I'm not, you're not the Christ. You're not Elijah. Look with me again over there in John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Are you the prophet? This likely refers, not, not all theologians and scholars will agree, but this likely is one that uh, is a reference to 
Moses' statement that God would provide a prophet after the likeness of me, what I've done. And you remember Moses' role? He was the great emancipator. He led the people out of captivity. He led them into the prom- up to the promised land. Joshua had to bring them in, but the reality is that Moses was for all time and eternity a huge and key figure in Jewish theology and their expectation about the end times. So he's going through all, they're going through all their list of possibilities. Who in the world are you? Because listen, not everybody wears camel the way you do, John. And, and I know some people down the street, they, they, my neighbors, they, 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 they want to tell everybody we're vegan. It doesn't bother me. It doesn't change me, but it doesn't bother me. They don't want to eat meat. Hey, more, more steak for us, you know. But, the, <laughs> but let me tell you, if John says, hey, I've really found a delicacy, it's called locust. I'm going to say, John, I had one of those one time. A missionary came to the church I was pastoring, and before I knew it, he had made sure that the people knew that I'd already volunteered to eat a locust. And friends, I did not. I did not. But there, you know, I'm the pastor. What am I going to do? Embarrass the missionary? You know, no. So I ate that thing. Let me tell you, gravel is better tasting than dried locust. Okay? Let me just tell you, I didn't have an appetite for the rest of the evening. And I was really wanting supper, but I lost my appetite. I I found out I gained one the next morning, so that's okay. But the reality is that this man was a strange figure to look upon. You say, well, well, why was that? He was not only in a different place to create a comparison, a contrast from the priest, but he wasn't, he wasn't trying to be like them in any way, and he wasn't going to be dependent upon anyone. Now listen, Zacharias, his father, was a priest. Remember when he didn't believe that he and Elizabeth were going to be able to have children? He was, and God spoke to him, and because of his disbelief, while he was serving in the temple, he lost his voice until the boy had been birthed, and it was time to name him. John could have been a priest right after his father, taking up his rotation in the temple procedures and rites and been a part of it if he had so desired. But God's call on his life said, no, that's not the direction. And so I don't want you depending on the system or anyone else. I'm going to be your provider and I want you to be loyal to me and me only. And so that's what happened. Look with me again in John chapter 1. He not only has this identity that people are trying to... It, they're, just, they're questioning, they're, they're scratching their heads. They're saying, who in the world and what should we make of this man? He's gathering a crowd more and more. People are beginning to listen to him much more than they've listened to us. He's saying something fresh and something new, and we don't have anything like that. We're just saying and doing the same old things with the same old mediocrity that we've always done, but he's got a fire about him, and he's concerned about the, the readiness of the people for the entrance of the Messiah, but he says he's not the one. He's not Elijah. He's not the prophet. We've got to figure this out. And they were at a loss. Now look with me one more time. Not only were they bewildered by what he looked like and 
trying to figure out who he was, but in verse 23, he answers. As much as anyone is going to see answered this question about who he was, he says, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. What was that he was doing? What is, what is this way of the Lord and how do you make it straight? What he was saying, the, <laughs> the way of the Lord is the highway of holiness, folks. And what he was doing in his preaching and then in his practice of baptism, we'll look at that in a moment, he was getting people ready for the entrance of the one, the Messiah, the Christ. He was preparing their hearts. His baptism, we're going to talk about it in a moment, was preparatory. Everything he was doing was pointing toward the holiness of the one being sent. The Holy One who was the Christ, the Messiah. Messiah, Christ. Messiah is, an, is a, more of a Hebrew uh, term. Christ is the Greek term. They both mean the sent one. The reality is he was preparing them. And the way we get ready to see God move is put ourselves in the way of the Lord. We, we be, if you want to see God move in your life, if you want to prepare your heart to see God answer needs, asking Him to do things that you've all but given up on ever happening, at least in your lifetime, then you live holy. You respond to His call. Be ye holy, even as the Lord is holy. That's where... You know, you, we, we often scratch, and I'm pastoral care, and I, I mean, I see people all the time, and I'm so grateful. I, you know, these, these divine appointments like you had this afternoon, I mean, they happened. I mean, they do. But I understand, I understand that if I want God to do more than just mercy drops around us keep falling, but for the showers we plead, I, only not, I not only need to be walking holy, I need to have a will and a heart for holiness. Because whatever He's going to do, He's going to do it through people who are prepared for Him to walk in their lives and to follow Him as He does. Look with me again. Not only were, what do we see John's bewildering identity, and we've looked and we've seen that the, these folks that had come from Jerusalem, they were... They were sent by the priests there in Jerusalem. They were part of the Sadducee sect that we find in the New Testament. But now, look with me, in verse uh, 24 it says, Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. You said, wait a minute, you said they were sent by the Sadducees. Again, language changes and the way we hear and the way we understand, not saying the Bible's incorrect or incomplete or insufficient, but just hear me. What they're saying at this point is, along with the Sadducees' envoys, now there came with them in the crowd some who were from the Pharisees as well. You know when you made both sides of the spectrum mad, you're probably doing something right. Look with me. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, this group, not who are you, but they asked him and said to him, why then are you baptizing? What authority do you have to practice baptism? Now, baptism was not unique to John and then Jesus and the disciples in the church today. Baptism had been a rite of, of religious practice 
for a long time at this point for different reasons and different preparations and spirit, uh, ceremonial uh, preparations and that sort of thing. But they were wondering, now, if you're not the Christ and you're not Elijah and you're not the prophet to be expected, by whose authority are you doing this? Because we understand the folks up in Jerusalem didn't send you, but now us local pastors, the, the synagogue leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes, the ones that were more conservative, they were the ones that had the, the whole uh, spectrum of laws not just the, the Ten Commandments like the Sadducees held to. And, and they not only believed in more than just the, the Ten Commandments, they also believed in the resurrection. The Sadducees rejected that. Jesus confronted those issues in His own ministry in the days ahead. But what we find is that these Pharisees were asking, we're, we're not concerned so much about who you are because honestly, we've probably figured out that you're Zacharias and Elizabeth's son. We, we know your lineage. We're not sure about what you're doing but what we want to know is by whose authority you do it. They wanted to see his credentials. But John just showed him his calling. Look with me. Verse 25, oh, 26. They ask him again, if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet, why, you know, again, why are you baptizing? John answered them, didn't say, well, this is because, he didn't say, because I want to, or because so-and-so told me to do it. He just answers them in this way, I baptize in water. Well, we didn't ask you what you were using to baptize folks. We ask you why you're doing it, and by whose authority. But among you stands the one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things take place, took place again in Bethany beyond Jordan where John was baptizing. I've already explained that part, the location. But I want to share with you again, not only John's bewildering identity, but also the fact that he had, for their, in their minds, a baffling authority. They had a baffling authority. It, it just did not make sense. These were people who knew a lot of things. It's like Doc, uh, President Ronald Reagan once said, the problem with some folks is they know so much that's not true. <laughs> These Pharisees were diligent in their study of the Old Testament Scriptures. They understood what words on a page were, but they didn't understand the spirit in which they were written. They didn't, they didn't understand what the words were really communicating because their minds were blinded. They were, they were looking at it and approaching God. Again, if we do all these things just as the law of Moses has prescribed, then we're going to be considered holy by God, acceptable by God, and we'll be rewarded by God. And the whole Old Testament is saying these practices are not to make you holy or acceptable or rewarded by God. They are making sure you understand there's nothing in human effort that can ever do those things. You need not more service projects. You need a Savior. They missed the point. Now look with me. It says there in verse 24 and follow, and we'll pick up because, again, it's a transition. They've been sent... From the Pharisees, in verse 24, 25, he's asked, what authority? Verse uh, 26 goes on, he answered them, I baptize in water. You see, again, 
They were wanting his credentials. Please show us your ID. Where is your priest identification card? Where's your prophet pass? Where's your diploma of merit? I can just imagine John saying, pulling out a little bag, and he said, would you like a locust? (laughs) He's not concerned with what they're worried about. He's not overwhelmed by their questions. Their their power, their position, their role, who they are, and what authority they have among men has no bearing on him. Why? Because he is confident, clearly confident, constantly confident that he's been called by God. And nothing's going to distract him from fulfilling that calling. When you and I realize who we are in Christ. (laughs) As they say, we're ready to take on hell with a water pistol. We don't worry about what people say. We don't worry. Is is this going to be convenient? Is this going to be, is everybody going to pat me on the back and say, good job. Oh, you're such a fine person. Oh, I wish I had your kind of will or your kind of ability or your kind of gifts. No, no, no. Nobody was looking, hey, I want to wear a camel tied around my waist with a piece of leather that I probably got off a dead animal out there in the wilderness. And then I'm going to wait around. I'm going to catch and dry me out some locusts. That's the life for me. No, no, no. His, His identity may have been bewildering, but his authority was what really rubbed them the wrong way. He wasn't falling into line. He wasn't saying the same religious jargon that they had repeated for centuries. The scripture here, look with me again, tells us not only of this rite's practice, this rite of baptism. He says, I, I do it in water. Why did he do it? John's message, John the Baptist's message to the people of his day was repent and be ready. Turn from your sin and be ready for the Redeemer. Turn from what you've been practicing. Give up that old narcissistic, selfish, that that all about, you know, get all you can, can all you get, sit on the rest and spoil the, uh, sit on the lid and spoil the rest. It wasn't about that. He said, give that lifestyle up and receive the one who's coming when he arrives. Be ready. Live a life apart from sin. You know, that's a really good encouragement. But it's not the whole story. Because while they could, in earnest, repent of sin, you and I know that just saying, I don't want to do that anymore, doesn't empower us to not do it anymore. We've got to have somebody come in and do in us what we have never and will never be able to do on our own. And so that readiness, you know, there was, there was such a, an urgency about his message. Why? Because he knew who he was. He knew. Yeah, there's been 400 years of silence, but God put on my heart to speak a prophetic word. <laughs> He's coming. He's coming. He's coming soon. Be ready. Be ready. 
Repent of your sin. Put away your, your falseness. Put away your, your, your sin. Put away the crookedness of your life. And receive. be ready when He arrives to receive Him who is able not only to make you deny those things consistently, but to live fully His life. The Scriptures here tell us that John baptized in water. And then he goes on to say in this response that really wasn't the response they anticipated. He says, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. Now, again, everything in Scripture is in context. John the writer John the Apostle, who's writing this book, is now telling the narrative of John the Baptist's words. But he's already set us up earlier in the chapter with a very similar statement. Look with me again. In chapter 1 there, and verse 15, John, that is John the Baptist that we're talking about tonight, testified about him and cried out saying, this, is, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank or comes before me in rank. He's, he has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. The reality is that the baffling authority was not only about why are you baptizing, but also it was because he understood the one who had come. 20 plus miles outside Jerusalem. The king was about to be revealed. He didn't need a temple. He didn't need fanfare. He didn't need the applause, the approval, or the accreditation of the priest. Why? Because he's the one who came before me and he's higher than me. He is the one who is the Son of God. He is the one who you have searched for, and yet He's standing in the midst of you, and you can't see Him. Oh, what a condemnation on religion and the practice, practitioners of religion. <laughs> My wife could testify to you I'm Mike Crouch, and I'm a recovering legalist. I grew up Baptist. I mean, very Baptist. I mean, really, really Baptist, folks. I don't know if you know any types like I was at one time, but my parents, God bless them, they're wonderful. I love them, they're, they're serving and living for the Lord. But I don't know if it was all them or just the way I perceived, but here's what happened. I thought my life was to get up, go to, go to school, come home, get ready, go to church, come home, get ready for bed, go, get, go to sleep, get up, go to school, come home, get ready for church, go to church, come home, get ready for bed, go to sleep, come up, you know, over and over. I thought that was, you know. There was a guy that, that wrote, the, one of the founders of Starbucks that said the Starbucks experience was his book. And he, he says, we want to make, besides work and home, we want to make Starbucks that third place for people's lives. 
That's why you find people hanging out. It's their third place. Well, my parents didn't read that book. They said, if you're going to be any place besides home or school, you're going to be at church. And so I learned to be very religious. <laughs> very rigid. Until one day, I wish I could say it was when I came to know Jesus and everything changed. I know I was saved. But I held on to that religion. And let me tell you something. There was a moment where I just realized what Paul, a religious, very, very religious, very, very, I think he was a Southern Baptist, but I don't know. But he was that rigid. But on, you know, on the road to Damascus and a few months after that experience of salvation, there was a time there that he was trying to get things started and nobody was believing, nobody was accepting him. So he had to go to three years of seminary by himself in the middle of the Arabian desert. But when he came back, you know what the rest of his life was about? Oh, the grace that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the love that brought it down to man. That's the reality. I mean, yes, I, I, I want to be right. I want to live right in all quadrants of my life. But the reality is the first thing that we ought to do when we see somebody who's very different from us, show them grace. Love them first. And then when they're ready and they're willing to hear the truth, share it boldly and clearly and simply. John didn't worry about whose credentials he did or didn't have. He just said, the authority that I have is that I've been called of God in an opportune moment, a pivotal moment. Look with me. He just repeats what, he'd been, what we had already heard earlier by John the writer. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place again in Bethany beyond Jordan where John was baptizing. Now, very quickly. See, y'all aren't listening fast enough, so I'm going to have to speed up. John's, again, bold testimony. John's bold testimony. Verse 29, The next day he saw Jesus coming to him, and he said, <laughs> Behold, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I know those religious folks yesterday didn't see it. They're probably standing in the, in the crowd that day as well. But look, I'm, I'm going to make it plain. The one who I have been telling you about, the one I told you to prepare your hearts and minds to receive, it is Him. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's the pivot. He had been telling them to get your hearts ready. Now the message is going to be receive. Ready is good. Repent and be ready is good. But receive and rejoice. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. That's a, that's a big pivot. Not only in His message, but in the history of God's salvation for man. It is a moment that has never been repeated, never needs to be repeated. Look with me again. Not only do we see the pivot in His message... But we go on, verse 30. This is he 
on behalf of whom I said, after, he, after me comes a man who has a higher rank than I. Again, a, a, re, a, repeat, a, re, a repetition, once again, who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. Not only is this the Lamb of God, the one who's going to take away the sins of the world, but let me just tell you, this man, this man is the self-existent one. He's existed long before I, long before you, long before there was Moses, long before there was Abraham, long before Adam. This one who stands among you now, this Lamb of God, is the God-man. He is fully God and fully man. Boy, that's, that's a powerful statement. Not only is it a, a pivot in His own message, but the purposes of, of His ministry has now come to pass. John has seen the glorious conclusion of all that He was born to do, called to do, empowered to do, settled in His heart and mind to do. Boy, that must have been a moment. Not just when your hopes and dreams come to pass. You know, I, I found a lot of things in my life that I worked for and I hoped for. Boy, this is going to be great. I'm going to reach this. It's going to be awesome. It happened. It's kind of anticlimactic. Why? Because the, the, the pursuit was so intense and so full of anticipation that when I finally realized I've arrived, it was like, okay, what do I do now? And thankfully, God continues to give us new opportunities and new ways of serving Him, and that's awesome. But let me just tell you, John knew. <laughs> the one who has existed before me has now come before me. And I'm not even worthy to unleash the straps on his sandals, the lowest of slaves' responsibilities in the household of the day. I'm not even worthy to be in the house. But there he stands. And oh, oh. Can I say it again? Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He just kept, I, I just, it wasn't anticlimactic for John. The power of that moment, the, the profound nature of that experience where he was just doing what a humble servant should do. And God blessed with the moment of celebration. Really, it was more than just a celebration. It was a coronation right there at the creek bank. Verse 31, read with me. I did not recognize him. That is, I didn't recognize him, not in the way that you don't know him, but I didn't realize that the one I'd always known as a relative, an extended family relative, was the Messiah because, look with me, verse 31 goes on, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptized. I just did what God told me. I didn't worry about who it was going to be. I wasn't looking to say, is it him? Is it her? Is it that one? Is it this one? Is it that one? I, you know, the reality is God had given so much Scripture in the Old Testament. Excuse me, I said her, didn't I? I don't want to say her, okay? He knew it was going to be a man, Okay. Let's not get gender confused in here, all right? He had always known it was the, that one would be revealed 
by his ministry. But God didn't tell him, you worry about figuring out who it is. He just said, you do what I told you to do. And when it's time, I'll reveal him to Israel. And he said, I, I, I didn't put two and two together, perhaps. I didn't recognize him as the Messiah before, but now, here's how it came about. John testified saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. That is, the Spirit remained on this man, this pre-existing one, this Lamb of God who stands before you. Descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes not in water, but in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. What he is telling us is that there was a prediction about the Messiah that he had to be aware of, that he was given an awareness of. He's going to be the one that when you're ministering, when you're just doing what you've been called to do, in the moment that's right, in the moment that I'm ready to reveal him, I'm going to show you the Spirit of God descending and abiding on him. And whoever that is, that you see that happen to, before your very eyes, you can know without a doubt, John, that's the Messiah. And when he saw it, he said, I wasn't, I wasn't trying to figure it out. I didn't know, didn't recognize until the sign. I wasn't even worried about recognizing it. Because God had already said, this is the way you're going to know. But that just happened. That moment when he walked down the creekside. Now, now you know, John being a few months older than his relative Jesus in earthly terms, in earthly years, in, in earthly time. You know he knew the boy. But at that moment, walking down that bank of that side of the river, you know that he had seen, looked up as a, as a young boy or a teenager, he had looked up time and time again and seen his relative Jesus walking down toward him. All those times, God hadn't manifested it. God hadn't showed him. That's the one. But that moment, standing on that creek bank, his relative Jesus, unexpected to him, but obvious now, the Spirit of God descended upon this one who is the... <gasps> That's the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. This is the one who's the God-man. This is the one who's the Son of God. I testify to you. I'm telling you folks, everything you've heard from me is culminating in that one. He's the Son of God. That's why there was a celebration at the creek bank. Because after 400 years of silence, <laughs> there was celebration. After eons of supplication and praying, God, please send Messiah. There was now the entrance of the Savior. I'm telling you. <laughs> I have no rhythm. I told you last week I can't even play the radio well. But that almost makes this, this as Pastor talked about this past Sunday, this almost, that almost wants to make this Baptist dance. And that'd be an ugly sight for you, so I'm not going to manifest that to you. I don't want to go shock in a different way than John was. But I'm telling you, we ought to be happy. 
that the one who had been the last Old Testament prophet had been told, you're going to be the one to pass the baton, to mark the beginning of the earthly ministry of Messiah. And after all that waiting, and after all the years that he had sensed God's call on his life, John the Baptist in that moment knew My work is done. He's come. All that the prophets had told us, all that humanity had heard since, <laughs> since Adam and Eve had sinned knowingly. You say, ah. Satan deceived Eve. Doesn't say anything about Adam. In fact, my conclusion as I continue, and I'm not, I'm not saying this in concrete, I'm not carving this in marble, but what I believe right now in my study is that instead of being on the other side of the garden, Adam was right there watching the whole scenario play out. He abdicated his responsibility to lead his home, opened up his wife to the deception of the enemy, and when she took it and turned around and handed it and said, it, it does taste good. He, having abdicated that first responsibility, abdicated his allegiance, his submission to the Lord God, and he willingly, knowingly, with his eyes wide open, took and ate. And Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says, not do we die in Eve, but in Adam all die. From that moment, every human being on planet earth has been needing the Lamb of God. Behold! Look, friends, and that's what we're going to do for the rest of the time I'm given. As we study through John, we're going to come back over and over again that the reason this gospel was written, that reading these things, hearing this narrative, you might believe, and believing in the name of the Son of God, you might have life. No more death, but life. Let's pray. Father, right now there are those in this room that you've drawn here, perhaps almost like the crowds gathered around John, just curiosity. What's going on in the chapel tonight? Maybe it's because their schedule means that they can't always be at church on Sunday, so this is their worship time. But whatever the reason, maybe it's like those four young men that Sam and Jeff were able to lead to the Lord this afternoon that the Holy Spirit just drew them here tonight. 
But what they've known is that there's something inside of them that's just not right. And we've just identified that as that Adam's nature of sin that we've all received. And we've, we've seen even the most religious people, not the most righteous in man's eyes people, cannot save themselves. But only the Lamb of God can do that saving work. Father, I pray right now that if that's where anyone in this room stands tonight, that before they walk out of this room, they would come <laughs> in joyful repentance and joyful reception of Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. Father, we pray that those of us who do know Him, who have recognized Him, who have repented of our sins and placed our faith in Christ already, might be men and women who from now until you come will say, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world in every way, in every context, in every relationship you've ordained for us to do so. Find us faithful, Lord. Again, friends, in just a moment, we're going to say amen to this prayer. But as we're praying right now, if you want to know Christ as your Savior, I'll be down here. Sam will remain down here. We'll have some folks that can, besides the two of us, can talk to you and walk you through the simple, joyful commitment and surrender of our lives that it means that's involved in coming to know Christ as your Savior. Father, we thank you again, not only that you're a God who makes promises, but keeps them. A God who promises a Messiah and delivers a God who knows not that we just need more sacrifices, but we need a perfect sacrifice. And you provided it in your own Son. We rejoice and testify with John. This is the Son of God. For it's in His name we pray. Amen.